John writes here in the book of John, chapter 14. The Lord Jesus says these words. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This morning we are blessed to have uh, Dr. Larry Overstreet, former professor of uh, homiletics or preaching at Northwest Baptist Seminary. He is still in the area, uh, as I know that he has uh, been hoping to uh, be able to sell his home and, and move to uh, the Midwest, uh, I believe. And so if he would, uh, if he would give us a little uh, uh, update on how you're doing, let's give him a warm welcome as he comes forth. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Yes, we expected that we would be living in Indiana long before now, but we're not. So that's, we put our house up for sale last May, expecting that it would sell. We were so confident that we shipped all of our main furniture back to Indiana on July the 1st. We brought some patio furniture into the house to, you know, because we expected we'd only be there a very short time. We're still using that same patio furniture inside the house. And uh, at least it kept it from getting snowed on. So, you know, patio furniture didn't get snowed on. But uh, we had it on sale for uh, May into November, and nothing happened. We had people come and look at the house, but nobody made an offer. So in November, we took it off the market. We figured with uh, the Thanksgiving season and the Christmas season, one thing we didn't want to do was have all the interruptions of the possibility of somebody coming in when not much was happening anyway. And then we thought, well, we'll wait until January because when the new president is inaugurated, things will just automatically get better. (laughs) You sound like you doubt that. Um, Well, anyway, we did put it back on the market again in January uh, with a different realtor. And we're really pleased with our realtor, but it still hasn't sold. Uh, so, I, you know, we're just waiting. And uh, in the meantime, the Lord is still sitting on the same throne that he was sitting on before. And we're trusting him. And there was a time last summer when I, my wife and I were a little bit anxious about this whole thing. And then we just came to the realization, look, God is still God. And we committed it to him. And we said, okay, if we stay here in Washington, that's all right. He's still God in Washington. You know, he's not just the God of Indiana. He's also the God of Washington and everywhere else. And so we thought, we can trust him here just like we can trust him there. And so we've just been enjoying our time here. And enjoying being with people like you and the ministry that the Lord continues to give us. Uh, We still travel. We traveled the month of January. We went to Tennessee, Indiana, Georgia, and Florida. All in the month of January. 
representing Northwest Baptist Seminary at three different colleges and then also taking some vacation time. And we've been able to spend time with two little wonderful granddaughters that live right here in Lakewood, Washington. And it's just, they're, they'll soon be 14 months old. And that's exciting to just watch them grow. And this last time we were over at their house, we were commenting that one of these days we're going to be leaving and we'll leave these little girls. And our daughter-in-law said, yeah, and you may be leaving another one. And we said, is something happening that we don't know about? And she said, well, not yet. You know, but they're wanting to have more children eventually. And so just one of those things. We'll see what happens as God opens up um, family relationships and all that that happens. Anyway, it's fun, isn't it? Just to trust the Lord, have your family know him and just see what God's doing. And he's still at work and we still trust him. Although there are times that we struggle, I'll admit it, my wife and I, there are difficulties that we face. I know most of you never face any problems, right? You never, hey, <clears throat> Do any of you have washing machines at your house? Clothes washing machines? Have clothes washing machines? Okay. Uh, you know, have you got one of the old, older type that has an agitator in it? You, got the, you know what those are? Alright, yeah, okay. You know, they make new ones now where everything tumbles, and we don't have one of those. We've got one with an agitator in it, and you put the clothes in, you fill the thing up, and you turn it on, and you watch that agitator. Now, some of you have machines where you can leave the lid up, and it'll still keep working. We have one of those. Uh, others of you have a machine, probably, if, as soon as you lift the lid, it shuts off. Supposedly, it's a safety feature. You know, it keeps you from drowning inside the washing machine. I don't, something. I'm not sure why it's a safety feature. But anyway, ours, if you leave the lid up, you can still see it. You can still see it work. And it's, you ever, you ever just stand there and watch it? You know, just watch what happens to... Now, if you haven't done this, see, I do funny things. You know, I've, I've done this. If you haven't done it, you just need to do this. Just, just watch the clothes in the washing machine and watch that agitator as it works. And watch how the clothes, you'll see them, you'll see the, one of the, say you're looking at a pink towel, all right? Just watch the pink towel. And watch it as it comes up to the surface and it twists around and then... It's sucked back down to the bottom again. And then you wait for a while, and it comes back up again, and it sucks around, and back down to the bottom again. Just watch it. Isn't it fun? <laughs> See, some of us are entertained by minor things. Yeah. All right. But that agitator, I mean, it just grabs it, it turns it around, it pushes it up, it sucks it back down again. And in the process, it beats all the dirt out of it, you know, and makes it clean. All right. Do you ever feel like life is an agitator for you? Do you ever feel like this is the circumstances of life? They just kind of twist you around, push you up, grab a hold of you and suck you back down again. Twist you around some more, push you up, pull you back down. That ever happened to you? The troubles, the difficulties, the pressures. That happens to me. And my guess is, if it hasn't happened to you, you know, some of you young people, you're sitting there thinking, I don't know what he's talking about. You will one day. You know, say, I don't have any particular troubles. Just wait, they're coming. You know, you've heard the old saying, cheer up, things could get worse. And so I cheered up. And sure enough, they got worse. You know, that kind of thing happens in life. And there are troubles and there are problems. They may be physical. 
you know, sometimes we get diseases, cancer, heart attacks, all kinds of things can affect us. Sometimes they may be in our families, problems between parents, husbands and wives, between parents and children, sometimes problems between the children themselves, difficulties in the family relationships. Maybe that's what the problems are and the troubles that just agitate your life. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's economic. Not that we're having any economic problems in these days. Uh, Maybe you're in danger of losing your job. Maybe you already did. You don't know what the future holds. You're just agitated by life. You're troubled by circumstances. You aren't the first. And you won't be the last. So what do you do? When all these troubles are just agitating you, where do you turn? John chapter 14, I believe, answers that for us. Let's go back to that text that Pastor Joe read. John chapter 14. Because here in this passage, the Lord Jesus gives us three practical truths about our troubled hearts. The first one's found in verse 1. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. That word troubled, that that has that idea of that agitation, that that distress, that idea of being pulled in several directions at once and sucked down and pushed up and twisted around and just, oh, my heart just turned and twisted and I don't know how to get out of this problem. Whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, economic, whatever it happens to be, And Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. Now I want you to notice in the text, it's directed to each heart. Jesus says, do not let your heart, not hearts, no S on that. Don't let your heart. Jesus is directing this to each one of them. It's almost as if he says, Peter, don't let your heart be troubled. John, don't let your heart be troubled. Simon, don't let your heart be troubled. And just went right down the list. All of them. says, don't let your heart be troubled. And that same Lord who spoke to those disciples, in essence, is still speaking to you and me through the scriptures today. And he says to you, don't let your heart be troubled. It's directed to each one of us. It's directed to me. When economically, I don't know what's going to happen. When my house won't sell. When disease strikes. When family problems erupt. Whatever the circumstance happens to be, Jesus still speaks to my heart and says, Larry, don't let your heart be troubled. And the way he words it here, there are different ways you can say don't do something. For example, let's suppose that you've got a little child in your your home. Now, our granddaughters are getting to the age now where they, they, they walk. And so it won't be long before they will be all over the house. They're, all, they're already getting there. And they'll start wanting to get into everything. Can you relate to this? You know, all those nice little things that you have around the house that break. And the kids start reaching for them. And sometimes you see your child and they've got their hand on the thing. And you say, don't. And the idea there is, you've already got it, stop. And then there are other occasions when you see them headed toward it, but before they get there, you say, don't. And the idea is, don't start. 
So which one is it Jesus is talking about here? Is he saying, don't, don't ever let your heart start to be troubled? Or is he saying, you've already got troubles, now stop it? Which one's he talking about? And it's the second. He's saying to the disciples, you already have a troubled heart. I want you to stop being troubled. That's what he's saying. By the way, we... It was funny to watch our kids as they grew up, especially our, our daughters. Our older daughter was the worst or the best. Depends on your viewpoint. We, if she was going to do something as just a little tyke, and we would tell her, Lori, no, no. No, no. And she learned those two words. And there were occasions when we would be listening to her, and, and you would hear her say, no, no. And she was reaching for something she knew she wasn't supposed to do. And she'd say, no, no, and then go ahead and try and do it anyway. <laughs> now, <that's... clears throat> have you ever noticed you don't have to teach kids to be bad? They just kind of automatically do it. You have to teach them to be good. Well, here, Jesus, in essence, is saying, you already have the tendency to be troubled. You already have troubled hearts. I want you to stop. So he directs it at each heart. And he determines it for each life. Now I want you to observe some things in the context. Jesus is here at the last of his earthly life. He's coming up to the final time. This is the night before he goes to the cross at Calvary. And there are events that have been taking place in the past hours and few days that have led him to this particular point. I want you to notice some of the things over which we see some things about the Lord Jesus himself. Look back at chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus speaks at verse 18, and he's talking about the fact he's going to be betrayed. He says, I don't speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is he that, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Drop down in verse 26. Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus was about to be betrayed and he knew who it was. What kind of things trouble us? How about people who betray us? Does that ever trouble you? Here Jesus is going to be betrayed. Those are the kinds of things that may trouble us. Drop down a little bit in the context and notice verse 33. Chapter 13, verse 33. He says, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I'm saying to you, where I'm going, you can't come. Now, Jesus had been with these disciples for years. He had been teaching them and ministering with them and helping them and teaching them the marvelous truths about the Lord and his kingdom. And now he says, I'm going to go away and you can't come. And it looks like Jesus is going to abandon his disciples. Do you ever get trouble when people abandon you? People you think should be there with you. I'm sure that if you would have stopped Peter right then, or John, or James, and said, Jesus is going to leave you all alone. What do you think about that? They probably said, that's not fair. He's our master. He's our Lord. He can't leave us. But that's exactly what he's going to do. People sometimes betray us. People sometimes abandon us. We think that's not fair. But sometimes it happens. 
Look down in chapter 13 again, verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, notice he says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. You'll follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. How about people who just reject us? You know, maybe the boss. He says, we don't need you anymore. And you're rejected. Maybe your spouse who says, I don't want to live with you anymore. And you're rejected. It may be your son or your daughter says, I don't want to live here anymore. And you feel rejected. That ever trouble your heart? Those are the kinds of things that are going on in this context. That's all happened in just, just the previous few minutes. Imagine the agitation in the disciples' hearts as they hear these words. And Jesus still says, don't let your heart be troubled. In the midst of all of this difficulty, don't let your heart be troubled. Well, that's what he commands. You know, it's one thing to tell people what to do. But it's another thing to give them the ability to deal with it. You know, your child gets hurt. You say, don't cry. Well, that's easy to say it. But it's hard for the child to stop crying. My wife had a saying that she's used numerous times. When something goes wrong, especially, you know, you hit your thumb with a hammer or whatever it happens to be. And she said, think happy thoughts. You ever try and think happy thoughts at a time like that? No, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to enable you to do it. Right? Those are not the same. So Jesus is telling his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. Okay. How do I go about that? And that brings us to the second principle. Because Jesus gives us the cure. Notice what happens. Back to chapter 14, verse 1. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now let me ask you a question. If you had been there at that time, and you had talked to Peter, James, John, Andrew, and if you would have asked them, do you believe in God? What would they have said? This is not a trick question. You know, you, you can answer me. What would they have said? Sure, I believe in God. They would have said that. I mean, they would have said, we believe that the God of our fathers is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God who opened the Red Sea. He's the God who gave us the promised land. He's the God who brought us back from the Babylonian captivity. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's the wise and faithful and merciful. They would have said that. It's one thing, however, to be able to have an intellectual knowledge of it and another thing to make it reality in your life. And I think that's what Jesus is after here. He says, I don't want you just to have it intellectually. I want it to become part of your, the fabric of your being. That you have a relationship with God. But then he takes it a step further. And he says, I want you to also believe in me. Notice he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Notice he doesn't say believe about me, but believe in me. Believe in who I am. 
Believe in what I've said. Believe in the truths that I've taught you. Believe in the character of my life. Well, who is he anyway? Well, one of the disciples asked him that in this very context. Thomas. Notice verse 5. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus in verse 6 gives him some key elements. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. You want to know what life really is? Then focus it in Christ. You want to know what truth really is? Find it in the Lord Himself. You want to find the way to God? You find it only in Christ. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. That's who he wants to believe in. He wants you to believe in him. Well, alright, he says, believe in me. Why should I believe in him? What's he done that I should believe in him? Now remember, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I want you to back up with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Let's observe some things about the Lord himself. In John chapter 11, you might remember the context. Lazarus, a good friend of the Lord Jesus and the brother of Martha and Mary, Lazarus died. Jesus wasn't there. By the time Jesus gets back, Lazarus has been dead and in the grave four days. Martha and Mary, they've got the, fa- the families there and the Jewish friends are there and, and they're going through the mourning and the wailing, the weeping. And Jesus arrives at town and Martha goes out to see him and Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And they have a conversation. And then Mary comes out a little bit later and she says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And notice verse 33. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was, what's the next word? Troubled. That's the same word that's used in John 14.1. In John 14.1, Jesus says, Don't let your heart be troubled. But here in John chapter 11, Jesus was himself troubled. What troubled him? The matters of life and death troubled him. That pretty well wraps it up, doesn't it? What is it that troubles you? My guess is it'll fall into one of two categories. Life and death. That pretty well summarizes it all, doesn't it? Jesus is there at the death of Lazarus and he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was troubled. Jesus was troubled over the matters of life and death. And because he was troubled over them, you don't need to be. And neither do I. He's already been troubled for us. That's not all. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Notice verse 23. 
Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his own coming death on the cross at Calvary. And then notice when he gets down to verse 27. He says, Now my soul has become troubled. Jesus knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to die for your sins and for my sins. And that has troubled him. Jesus was troubled over the issue of sin. Notice he goes on in verse 27. What shall I say? Should he say, Father, save me from this hour? Is that what he should say? Here he is, shortly before he's going to go to the cross at Calvary. Should he come to the Father and say, Okay, I've had it. That's enough. Get me out of here. I'm not going to do this. Is that what he should say? Well, notice his own answer in verse 27. He says, But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He knew that his purpose was to go to the cross. He knew that his purpose was to die for your sins, for my sins. He was troubled over the issue of sin. So I don't need to be. He took care of it. Notice chapter 13, verse 21. Speaking about his betrayal. And about Judas Iscariot betraying him. Verse 21 of 13. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit. There's our word again. And he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Did you ever stop to think, Jesus himself actually experienced the rejection of Judas Iscariot. He experienced it himself. And the fact that that somebody refused to believe in him, troubled him, He experienced it in his own life. It troubled him. But it did not defeat him. He still went to the cross. Knowing full well that not everyone would trust him. Knowing full well that he would give his life and die for the sins of the world. And yet, many in the world would never believe in him. He still did it. He was troubled. Troubled for life. He was troubled for death. He was troubled over sin. He was troubled over those who would reject him. The very kinds of things that still trouble us. And he was troubled for them. So he looks to his disciples and he says, You don't need to be troubled. I've already done it. Been there, done that. You don't need to. That brings us to the third principle. If we have an untroubled heart, what's the prospect? And we've got some glorious prospects. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
the King James Version translates that, In my father's house are many mansions. And there's even a song that was written, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Y'all remember that song? I've got a man. Now forget that. Yeah, you know, I've got a mansion, a little silver and a little gold. And when I was a kid and I heard that song, I pictured heaven as this, uh, like a southern plantation. You know, and, and there's this huge mansion, and it's got pillars in the front, and a tree line lane that comes up to it, and this big wraparound porch. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to have this, and acres and acres of land all around it with grass and flowers, and that's my mansion, that's heaven. You know the problem with that? It just isn't the way it is. That's not the way it is. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Notice in this verse, in my father's, what's the next word? House. How many houses? In the verse, how many houses? One. There's only one house. There's not a house over here for me, and a house over there for you, and a house in the next county for your friend. No, 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 there's only one house. In my father's one house. There are many dwelling places. Now what you have to realize is back in biblical times, while most people were poor, and some of the houses in biblical times, they were very small. Uh, Archaeology has demonstrated, for example, that in the city of Capernaum, there were some houses and the total size of the house was 12 feet by 15 feet. That was the whole house. That was it. Most of you have living rooms that are bigger than that. But that was the whole house. But there were some few people who were very wealthy. And those wealthy people had rather large estates. For example, in Acts chapter 12, remember when Peter was arrested and put in in prison and when the angel released him and he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and it says that he stood outside at the gate. There was this outer wall around the house, the property. And Peter couldn't get in because it was shut. He was knocking at the gate trying to get in. Now, now that's not the average house that that the typical person lived in. But there were wealthy people who had these. And here's what would happen. You had a wealthy man. And he had three sons. And there was a certain amount of rooms that were in the house that the wealthy man had. And then the oldest son, James, gets married. And the son would come back home and he would live with dad. And what dad would do is simply add on another dwelling place for James and his bride. And then a little bit later, Pete got married, the second son. And so Peter comes back home and dad adds on another dwelling place. And the house just adds on another apartment. And then a little bit later, Andrew, the third son, gets married. And so dad brings back Andrew and he builds another dwelling place. And the house just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger with all these dwelling places. But there's still just one house. And they're all in one family. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across. We have the prospect of being with our Heavenly Father in his family. What a glorious prospect. That's what awaits us in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. Jesus, says, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you. 
I'll prepare one for you. Prepare one for you, but you're all going to be in the same house. The Father's house. You're in the family. And then Jesus gives another prospect in verse 3. He says, and if I go and prepare this place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. You know, Jesus is coming again. I don't know when. I hope it's soon. I really do. You know, I, I think I mentioned to you before, I don't think I'm afraid to die. I would just rather not. You know, I just don't want to. I, I want the Lord to come back. You know, I just want to have him take me up and, and just be with him. And that may happen today. He says, I'm going to come again. Well, that's the prospect for the future. But what about the prospect for right now? Verse 27. Pastor Joe read this one as well. Notice he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. There's our word again. Don't let it, your heart be troubled. Because Jesus says, I'm going to give you my peace. I'm going to give you my peace. Right now, you can have my peace. In the midst of all these things that agitate us, that twist us and turn us and suck us down and stuff us and just in hard places and all these problems that we face and troubles that affect us and infect us, he says, in the midst of it all, I can give you my peace. You ever stop to ask, how do you get the peace of God? I think the answer is found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Paul says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, I used to read that many years ago, and I, here's the way I read it. Don't be anxious about anything. Let your requests be made known to God, and He'll give you whatever you ask for. But you know, that's not what it says. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be troubled. Don't be agitated about anything. But instead, let your request be brought before God. And then he says in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We get the peace of God when we bring our request before Him about everything. We don't necessarily get the answers the way we want them. If I would have got the answer the way I wanted it, our house would have sold on July the 1st. God doesn't promise to give us the answer the way we want it or at the time we want it. What He does promise is to give us His peace. That's what He promises. Are you agitated this morning? Maybe I should say, what is it that agitates you this morning? Because if you're like me, something is at work in your life. Something is seeking to agitate you. Something is seeking to bother you and trouble you. Employment, family, spiritual things health things, whatever that happens to be. Something most likely is agitating you this morning. Now, in your own heart, in your own mind, ask yourself, what is it? Pick it out. The thing that's worrying you the most right now. Something is, what is it?
What's that element right now that's agitating you the most? All right? Now, what are you going to do about it? Let me make a concrete suggestion. I want you to make a commitment between you and God this morning. Just between you and God. I'm not going to ask you to do something hard, but I'm going to ask you to do something consistent. I want you to make a commitment between you and God that starting today, you're going to take five minutes per day for the next seven days. And you're going to pray about that thing that is specifically agitating you. And you're going to commit it to Him. And whatever He does about it, that's His responsibility. And you're going to trust Him. You're going to believe in God. You're going to believe in Christ. Believing that He's already been troubled for you. You're going to claim His promise. I want you to make that commitment. Five minutes for seven days. And see what God does in your heart. At the end of it. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And we come to you this morning. Realizing the truth of your word. Because it's based on the truth of who you are. We admit, Lord. Things trouble us. Family. Economic health, emotional, spiritual, things trouble us. And Lord, we're going to make a commitment today between you and us. We're going to commit it to you. Just for a few moments, I want your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I don't want anybody looking around. I want to ask you this. If you're willing this morning to say, Preacher, I'm going to make that commitment. The thing that's bothering me, the thing that's agitating me right now, I'm going to make a commitment. Five minutes, seven days, starting today. I'm going to pray about that particular thing. I'm going to bring it before God. I'm going to commit it to Him. Five minutes, seven days. I make that commitment. If you'd say that, would you just slip your hand up right now, wherever you are? Yes, God bless you all. Many, many hands. Thank you. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our lives. You know our needs. You know our troubles. Lord, we thank you that you've been troubled for us. And now we want to make a commitment. To let you bear the troubles. We're going to claim your peace. In the name of Jesus. Amen.